Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. I want to ask you as you're turning there that you would remember, I meant to say this earlier, but be in prayer for Rachel and for Vance who are uh, preaching this morning at a, at a church in uh, and, and view of a call uh, to, to the ministry there. So we certainly want to be praying for them. Tina said it was okay if we prayed that it didn't work out, but I don't know if we should do that or not. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Tina did not say, this is recorded, so now they're going to, I better clarify that. Yeah, she did not say that. Uh, certainly we will miss them if the Lord does lead in that direction. Uh, but this is a good thing because healthy churches reproduce. Uh, healthy churches are churches that are sending people out. Uh, and that's never an easy thing, right? You all know that as parents, it's not easy to send children out, right? Because the, there's a change in the relationship and, and there's something that you miss there, but it's, it's a healthy thing. Uh, you don't want your 30 year old son living in your basement, usually under normal circumstances. And, uh, it's a healthy thing for us as church, as a church to be sending people out. So pray for, for them this morning. Also be in pray for, prayer for, uh, uh, Brother Ray and Deanna as he's out preaching as well this morning. So Ephesians chapter 6 and beginning at verse number 9, bond servants, or really the word doulos is, is the word, it, it means slaves. We, we could try to dress it up and sound better, but it's slaves. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or is free. Masters do the same and stop your threatening, knowing that he is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So this morning as we begin, I would ask you to consider maybe what is one of the worst things that you could imagine happening to you. I think we could all imagine an illness or a death of a loved one or losing your job. I think if we stopped and really thought about that at some, at some point, we'd have to say, well, it would be the loss of freedom. We as Americans have been greatly blessed by God and we celebrate the freedom that we have. In so many ways, this is one of the greatest blessings that we enjoy as people in a, in a free nation. Most people in the world throughout history have not enjoyed the freedom to self-determination as we do in, uh, here in America. In so many ways, you could lose a lot of things and still, because you are free, uh, things would not be that bad. You'd have the ability to pick up and start again. In fact, we sing that, don't we? God bless the USA. Uh, you all know that song, right? If tomorrow all the things were gone, I worked for all my life and, had to, and I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I thank my lucky stars to be living here today because the flag still stands for freedom and they can't take that away. Even if I lost everything that the lyrics of that song are saying, I would be okay because I would be able to start here in America with, with freedom. I certainly think that would be one of the greatest things that we could lose. We could think of 
You know, sometimes you talk about alternative history and maybe you've read some of those books. You know, what if the, what if, uh, you know, uh, the colonies had lost the Revolutionary War? Uh, what if, worse yet, what if America uh, and the Allies had lost against the Nazis? What if during the Cold War, communism had prevailed instead of, of freedom? And we could imagine what that might be like. What, what if you lived in a place where you weren't able to choose the number of children or the kind of work you did or where you lived or where you traveled and when you traveled or the way that you would worship? Well, in so many ways, what, what we have here in this letter is that Paul is writing to people, some of whom at least are slaves. Some, some of the people that Paul is addressing this Ephesian letter to are people who don't have those freedoms that we take for granted. As we begin this morning, I, I would just ask you to consider what would you tell somebody like that? So I sit you down in the room with them or I give you the pen and the paper and I say, all right, write a letter to slaves and try to encourage them to live the Christian life. What do you say to them? Right? What, what can you say to encourage people who are in slavery? Well, what we see, I think, in this text this morning uh, is that in Paul's minds, the truths of the gospel are so sure and so strong that they provide everything necessary to give hope and joy to people in the worst imaginable scenario. Like being slaves for us, we, we can imagine that that's like the worst, one of the worst possible scenarios that we can imagine. And yet Paul, as he's writing, he writes in such a way that he truly believes that, that what they have in the gospel, what they have in Jesus Christ should equip them to be able to live with enthusiasm and with joy, embracing this life of suffering. So let me just ask you that question this morning as we begin. Is the gospel, does the gospel do that for you in your suffering? Is the gospel the kind of unmovable rock so that even if the earth is shaking around you or when the earth is shaking around you, you are not moved because of the truth of the gospel, because of Jesus Christ? Is the gospel a strong anchor in your life so that even when the waves of life are crashing upon you, that your life is not capsized? Is the gospel a strong tower for you so that even when the enemy is hunting you down, you know that you are kept safe? Is the truth of Jesus Christ so real and so strong in your life that it could free you to even be a slave? I think the assumption of Paul in this text is that Christ should be your everything so that if you have him, you need nothing else, not even freedom. Now let me begin this morning just by taking a minute to speak to the issue of slavery, slavery and the Bible. Uh, here we have a text and, and my translation translates that bond servant really is just slaves. Paul's writing to slaves. Uh, and we, we might stop and think sitting here in the 20th century and, and the 21st century and, and thinking, what, what is it? Uh, why is it that the Bible would have something written to slaves? Why would Paul encourage slaves to be obedient 
to, to their master. So let me give you a few bullet points. I'm not going to be able to, to run through all of these things in depth. Uh, there are a lot of good resources, but let me just do a little apologetic work to help you understand what's going on in, in the Bible. The, one of the first things that we need to see uh, about in, in the Bible is that slavery is a human invention and it is not part of God's creation order. So when we're seeking to understand what is God's ultimate purpose, what is God's ultimate will, uh, one of, two of the places that we go, the sort of, as one person put it, the mountain peaks that we go to to see what is God's will are creation and redemption. Okay, there's a lot that happens in between here in a sinful and fallen and a broken world. But, but if we're asking the question, what is God's design? What is God's purpose? What is God's will? Creation and redemption. And when we look to creation, uh, we see that this was not, uh, the institution of slavery is not something that God created. It's not part of God's original intent and purpose. So just contrast this by way of marriage, right? Just contrast it by way of marriage. Marriage is part of the institution of God. It was created by God. Remember when God looked at, at Adam and Adam, there, there was no Eve at that point. And, and he looked everything that he saw in creation. He said, it's good, it's good, it's good. But when he looked at Adam and, and there was not a helpmate for Adam, what does God say? This is not good that man should be alone. And so he makes Eve and creates Eve and he brings them together, unites them in marriage. But what we notice, though, is that God doesn't look at Adam and Eve and say, you know what, this isn't good. They're having to do their own work. And God did give them work to do. Let me, let me create a third person which will, will be subservient to them and will be their slave. God doesn't do that. So we might ask the question then, why are there laws in the Old Testament, in, in, in the Old Testament law, why are there laws regarding slavery? And in the New Testament, why are there commands to slaves to be uh, o- obedient to their masters? Well, sometimes throughout human history, in the midst of a sinful and broken circumstances, God has made allowances and has regulated certain practices which were never part of the ideal. Now, I think there's a, there's a perfect correlation here, a perfect analogy that Jesus actually addresses uh, in, in the issue of divorce. In the Old Testament, there were laws about divorce. Uh, God regulated divorce. And so uh, in, when Jesus was here on earth, the people came to Jesus and they say, what's your view about divorce? Is it okay to give uh, a certificate of divorce to your wife? And, and Jesus says, no, it's, it's not right. Uh, marriage is intended to be, to be permanent. This is not something that uh, is part of God's design. They said, well, well, why is it that in the Old Testament, Moses gave us laws about divorce? And so you, you could see the, the parallel here. Well, if slavery is not part of God's original design, if it's not part of God's good purpose for the world, why would he give laws to regulate slavery? Well, Jesus gives the answer. He says, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives But notice what he says here, but from the beginning, it was not so. This was not part of God's original design. But the law of God was given in a in a world that was already encumbered by sin. It was broken. And so in the midst of that brokenness and that chaos, God gave some laws that interacted with the way the world was, not part of his original design. I think we could say the same thing about slavery. 
We see other issues such as polygamy, divorce, slavery. I think they all fall in that same category. God regulated them, but they were not part of his original design. Now, when when people say that the Bible is pro-slavery, in some ways it's absurd because the whole Old Testament narrative is based on this premise. Slavery is bad. It's an evil. It's There's injustice. And God delivered His people from an, from an unjust system. The whole narrative of the Old Testament is what? God redeemed slaves. He saw their injustice. He saw their suffering. And He delivered them out of Egypt. And the rest of the Old Testament is based on that premise. I'm your God because... I redeemed you out of slavery, out of that situation that was bad. You see, if God thought slavery was okay, that it was good, that it was, there was nothing wrong with it, there would be no reason for Him to deliver, to redeem, to rescue, or to save His people out of slavery. The whole Old Testament narrative is based upon that premise. In fact, when you look to the Old Testament narrative, it was the, the suffering and oppression of, of the people in slavery along with God's covenant promise to Abraham that led him to act. So in Exodus 2.23, it says this, Exodus 2.23, during those, uh, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. They, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. He understood their suffering. He understood the, the pain that was caused to them by their slavery. It goes on to say in chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 7, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. What is that affliction? Slavery. They're enslaved. He sees their affliction, the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out to that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So this is an important thing to understand. God understands that slavery is not good. God regulated it in the Old Testament as part of a broken system, uh, but it was never part of His uh, ideal or part of His creation design. Now let me say a couple more things. The laws that we do have in the Old Testament... Uh, an important point, most of them are laws that give protections to the slaves. So there's that. Also, things that we know about American slavery, as it was here in the South, uh, are, are not necessarily true of all slavery of all time. So slavery in the South was ba- based upon racism, which is clearly wrong. It was based on a mindset that said these people are beneath us and they should be our slaves because they don't have the cognitive ability to to live in freedom. And so us enslaving them is actually a good thing. It was racism and that's wrong and it's a sin and clearly condemned in the Bible. Also, the, the slavery here in America in the South was based on stealing people, kidnapping and enslaving 
people and bringing them here to America to be slaves. And you could see from Exodus 21.16 and 1 Timothy 1.9 that, that the stealing of people, kidnapping and stealing human beings is clearly forbidden in the Scripture. And so that is not uh, the, the kind of slavery that we're dealing with typically uh, in the New Testament time and in, in the Greco-Roman world or in, in the Old Testament. Well, what about the New Testament? Uh, why, why do we have commands like this? Let me just say a couple things quickly because I want to move through this. Uh, number one, though the New Testament does not explicitly condemn slavery, its principles, the principles that we find in the Gospel and in the New Testament undermine it so that if you are a Bible-believing, Christ-following uh, person, uh, you cannot be okay with slavery. Uh, slavery is built on the oppression of the poor. The Bible calls for us and Christ calls for us to care for the, uh, the poor. Slavery is often built on hatred. The, the Bible calls us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. If you love your neighbor as you love yourself, you're not going to be able to enslave them. And in fact, we actually have a whole book of the Bible. It's a short book of the Bible, but the book of Philemon that deals with this issue. And Paul is writing Onesimus uh, is a slave who has run away from his master. He's come and met Paul. He, he's believed in Christ. And now Paul is writing back to Philemon, who was the owner of this slave. And Paul tells him, you should receive him at, no longer as a slave, but you should receive him as a brother. You see, the gospel principles were working out in that relationship. Ultimately, the Bible is not concerned about with changing structures in society as much as it is with changing individuals who live in that structure. And that's what we see throughout history as people have embraced Christianity, as they have embraced, truly embraced the principles that we find in Scripture. It leads to... Um, to freedom and the doing away with slavery. So let me say one more thing about this. And that is when Paul is writing this letter, we say, why would Paul command slaves to, to, to be obedient to their masters? We need to remember that Paul is writing a particular letter to individuals that he knows. In other words, Paul's not sitting down. He's not a philosopher. He's not Plato or Aristotle sitting down and saying, let me contemplate slavery and let me write my thoughts about slavery. No, Paul's saying, hey, I know that in this church at Ephesus that I'm writing to, there are some slaves there. What, what do I tell them? What do I tell them about how they should live their life? He's not writing a, a discourse on the, the, the horrors of slavery. He's not, he's not shaping the policy of the Roman Empire. Do you know where Paul is when he writes the letter to the Ephesians? Paul himself is chained in jail in a Roman prison. He's, he's in a jail cell. He has no ability to change what's going on in Rome. He's not shaping the, the policy of the Roman Empire. He's writing to some people he knows who are slaves, and he wants to encourage them to follow Christ even in their slavery. So what does he tell them? What would you tell people in that situation? Well, Paul points them to the gospel. He has no ability to even give himself freedom, let alone give anyone else freedom. And so he tries to point them to Jesus Christ and the rock-solid truths that we have in the gospel that they can build their life on and live uh, in joy and in hope even in the midst of that suffering. Paul is writing to those who are 
finding them, who find themselves in slaves. Paul himself is in a Roman prison. What is he going to say? Let's start a revolution. Is that what he's going to say? Let's start a civil war. Let's overthrow the Roman Empire. It ain't going to happen, right? And so he writes to encourage them to live faithfully for Christ. Paul calls them to carry on through this immensely difficult life with enthusiasm, with everything they have, giving it their all and doing it with a gracious attitude. Paul doesn't say, hey, you're being treated bad. This is unfair. This is unjust. You, you're right. You ought to be grumbling and, and complaining. It's, it's understandable if you give your master a hard time. You shouldn't do any work for him. You should be obstinate and hard to get along with. They don't deserve your hard work. You should stand up against this. Paul doesn't tell them to do any of that. Basically, he says, remember the gospel. And because of the gospel and the truths that you find in the gospel, Live faithfully as a Christian. Be, be the best slave that there is. Do what your master wants you to do and, and, and do it with a good attitude. Be all in. Do it with your whole heart and do it, do it with, as an act of love, even for your master. He tells them not merely to endure their slavery, but to embrace it. Look and notice the kind of service they are to render. In verse five, he says they are to do it with fear. And trembling. That, that is with the proper honor and respect that would have been expected in that kind of scenario. So, so do it not, not with anger, not begrudgingly, not constantly challenging the authority of the master. No, do it with, with respect and honor, with fear and trembling. Verse five, he also says to do it with a sincere heart. So the service that you're called to do, that you're commanded to do, Paul says, do it with no reservations. Give it everything you have. Verse 6, he says, basically, don't, don't be fake. Don't, don't just do, do enough to get by when people are looking at you, when people are watching you, only concerned with keeping up appearances. No, work hard all the time. And then verse 7, he says, do it with a good will. That is good sentiment. Have a good attitude, a benevolent attitude toward your master. So work hard, be all in, not just when people are watching, and do it with good will toward your master. Well, how does this apply to us this morning? I may be wrong. I don't think I am, though. I don't think we have any slaves here this morning. Any, any slaves? Some of you say, I feel like I work like a slave, right? But, but I don't think we have any uh, slaves here this morning, but I think the principles that we find in this text, the, the, the truths that Paul's going to point these slaves to that will enable them to live with a right attitude, even in the worst possible scenarios, is, is the same thing that will help us in the suffering that we go through. Now, the reality is most of us are not suffering to the degree that a slave would be suffering, but, but the truths, the principles that we find here that Paul points them to will enable you to go through whatever suffering God has called you to go through. Because here's the reality, all of us go through suffering. So, so what is it for you? Is it a difficult marriage? A spouse that just isn't living up to your expectation? And you think, I just can't handle this anymore. This, this is a burden for me. Is it a job that feels like it's crushing your soul and you've got to go in every day and there's no escape, there's no way out? This is just life for the foreseeable future for you? Is it 
financial woes. Maybe you're working harder and harder, but, but the more you work, it seems like the less you have. Maybe there's an ongoing medical condition and there's anxiety that's caused by the uncertainty of that. The question is, what truth empowers you to live in that moment to the glory of God? What truth do you have that's a rock for you that even though those things are causing the ground around you to shake, you can stand on that rock and be secure? Well, let me help us think about this. I think Paul gives us a couple things. He's What he's trying to do, I think, is deliver us from the me now syndrome. The me now. I didn't say meow syndrome like a cat. Some of you all probably have meow syndrome. You like cats. And I'm, I'm praying for you every day. Uh, that God would deliver you from that. But I don't mean the me-ow syndrome, but the me-now syndrome. That That is this me. My life is focused on me. My life is all about pleasing myself and, and especially especially my physical existence. It's It's about me and it's about now. My life is focused on the present right here, Right now, it has no thought toward the future. Or, or if I think about the future and what's coming in the future, that, that really has little weight in the way that I feel right now. Like the thought of eternity, the thought of heaven, the, the thought of the future doesn't really impact me in a great way. The, this passage is de- designed, I think, to deliver you from that syndrome. To take your eyes and your focus off of you in this present situation that you're in and and lift them to both Christ and the future. It does this in a couple ways. There there are two basic truths, I think, that we find permeating Paul's instructions here. The, The first is this, the unseen is eternal. The unseen is eternal. We might say it a different way. There's something beyond what we can see that is really ultimate and eternal. You notice this in verse 5. He says, slaves, obey your masters. No, what does he say? Your earthly masters. That word earthly is really the word uh, for flesh. It's sarks, and it just means your your flesh. The word flesh in the New Testament, as you know, and if you've been in church for a long time, you might talk about that. Yeah, I'm just, I was kind of in the flesh and I did that. The, The flesh can be talking about your sin nature, uh, and we all have our, our flesh. Our flesh has been defeated, uh, but but we still battle the flesh on a daily basis. That's our sin nature. But the New Testament uses the word flesh in a different way sometimes, which is just to speak about your physical body. And when it does that, it's highlighting the fact that this physical body is temporary. Uh, it's very real, and, and it matters. It's important, uh, but, but this physical body, your flesh is, is subject to death and decay. It's, it's wearing out. It's physical as opposed to spiritual. And sometimes to us, the physical is what seems real, right? But what Paul is trying to remind them is that there's a spiritual realm going on. There's, there's something beyond slaves, what you can see. There's something beyond your flesh and bones. There's something beyond that physical body that you see the master who is your taskmaster. He's reminding them of the temporary nature of the situation that they find themselves in. So Isaiah 40 verse 6 says this, a a voice says cry, and I said, what shall I cry? This is the message that God tells Isaiah to cry. All flesh is grass, 
and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. So when Paul says, obey your fleshly, obey your earthly masters, what he's, what he's reminding them of is, is the reality of this. These masters are not forever. They're of the flesh. They're temporary. Their, their flesh is like grass. It's going to fade. They're like flowers. They're, they're going to fade away. It's, it's temporary. In the me now syndrome, we're tempted to think that now is all that matters. What's going on right now? The suffering that I'm in right now, this is what dominates my life. This is what defines who I am and, and what's going on. No, the, the reality is the situation that you're in, no matter how dire, no matter how difficult, is only a temporary situation. It's transient. Listen, if we truly understood the brevity of this life, it would, it would greatly change the way that we think about suffering. The book of James says, what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. But, but the, our view of our problems, our view of our suffering, our view of our difficulty is so great because all we're thinking about is here and now. We can't see that that suffering you're in is gone in a second. This life that you're living is going to be over in no time flat. And there's something much greater and something much better coming. And that's what Paul is reminding these slaves of. Your ability, listen to this, your ability to endure suffering is directly proportional to your trust in God's promises for eternal blessing. The bigger this life seems to you, uh, the, the greater these circumstances seem to you, the greater your suffering is going to be. But the greater God seems to you and the greater that eternity seems to you, these sufferings that you go through, these trials that you're in right now are going to seem much, much smaller. Why were the heroes of the Bible enabled to suffer in the way that they did? We think of the psalmist. In Psalm 73, 26, he says this, my, my flesh and my heart fail. There's that word flesh again. My flesh fails, my heart fails, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The psalmist is going through trials. He's going through difficulties. He's saying my flesh is going to fail, but God is my portion. That word means my share in the inheritance. God is my inheritance and that's forever. And the psalmist was enabled to go through his suffering. In that particular psalm, he's looking around at all these people who are living wickedly, and yet they're prospering. He's thinking, why is it that these wicked people prosper, and yet I suffer? Why do I suffer and the wicked prosper? And he's reminded, look, my inheritance isn't in this life. God is my inheritance. He's my portion, and He is forever. We think of Job who went through a great deal of suffering. If you know the, the life of Job, he lost everything. What was it that enabled Job to be faithful in the midst of that suffering? Unspeakable kinds of suffering. Well, this is what he says in Job 19.26, And after my skin, my flesh has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God 
whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. My, my flesh is going to fade away. And I'm going to see the Lord. And that's what enabled Job to lose his family, his children, to lose his health, to lose his wealth, to lose pretty much everything that he had and continue to say, I'm going to trust in the Lord. What was it? My flesh may fail, but I know I will see the Lord. What about the Apostle Paul, who was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he wrote this letter, the Ephesian letter, chained to a prison guard? What was it that enabled Paul to live the way that he lived? This is what he says in 2 Corinthians 4.8. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. I've experienced every kind of affliction, and yet I'm not crushed. I'm perplexed, but not driven to despair. I'm persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. He goes on to say in verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Really? You don't lose heart? You've been perplexed. You've you've been uh, afflicted in every way. You've been beaten. You've been shipwrecked. You've been imprisoned. You've been rejected by your own people. And yet you're not, you don't lose heart. He says this, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things that are seen, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. What what gave Paul the ability to carry on in that suffering? You see, what he's encouraging these slaves to do and what he's encouraging you to do is the same thing that he did. He didn't look to the things that are seen because those things are temporary. They're of the flesh. They're passing away. This world is passing away. So if if I invest all of my life, if I put all of my hopes and all of my dreams in this world, they're going to be crushed. But if I'm looking to something that's in the future, something that is spiritual, something that is unseen, when this world begins to collapse around me, it it doesn't destroy me because I'm not anchored to this world. I don't get pulled down with the world because I'm anchored in the Lord. And Paul says, when when I think that way, this momentary light affliction that I go through is nothing. It's nothing. Whatever you're going through, Paul just said it's momentary and it's light compared to the eternal weight of glory that's going to be revealed for you. So that's what you need to anchor yourself in. Not not in what can be seen. What what, What is seen is transient. What is unseen is eternal. Your suffering is temporary and your ability to endure that suffering while glorifying God is directly tied to your faith, your level of faith in things that are unseen. Secondly, the second truth that Paul gives to them here, I think, is this. Your life belongs to Christ. Your life belongs to Christ. The second problem with the me now syndrome, not the me now syndrome, the me now syndrome, is that we assume my life is all about me. My life 
belongs to me. I should get to do what I want with my life. That's one of the things that our American freedom conditions us to think and foolishly so. We thank God for our freedom, but, but freedom has some dangers if we, if we think, think in that way too much because we think I have the right to ultimate self-determination. Right? We understand that, that freedom gives you the right to self-determination. You could get up this morning, and because you're in a free country, you didn't have to come to church this morning. That's a good thing. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad that there are not laws that tell people they have to go to church. That wouldn't be a good thing because that doesn't change their heart. But, but you have the right to self-determination. But, but if you keep going with that, it can train your mind to think in such a way that, that thinks this way. I have the right to self-determination in all things like ultimate kind of self-determination. And if we're not careful, uh, we can fall into that mindset to think, I can do whatever I want to do. We even tell kids that, like, you could do whatever you want. You can, be, you can become president. Well, well in, yeah, in one way, maybe they could become president, but in reality, everybody can't become president. You don't have that kind of self-determination and, and ability to, to just decide that. You can pursue it but you don't have the ability to just determine I'm going to be the president. Just look around at a culture. I think what you see is that you, you have a culture, we live in a culture in a world that is constantly telling you it's all about you. Your life is about you. You deserve a break. You deserve this. You should have it and you should have it now and you should have it your way. Uh, you should put yourself first. You should take care of yourself first. You've got to pursue your dream. You've got to follow your heart. It's you, 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 you. Life is about you. Here's the problem with the me-centered view of life and that is this. It, does, it has no category for suffering. It has no ability to enable you to be able to suffer. Because this is what happens to all of us sooner or later. Like you can go along with that me-centered view of the world for a while until life smacks you upside the head and says, no, you can't just decide to do whatever you want to do. And suffering does that for us, right? I'm living my life. I'm pursuing my dreams. I'm getting the degrees that I want. I'm pursuing my career. And then, bam, the doctor says, you have cancer. Oh, wait a minute. I, I don't have the ability to ultimate self-determination. What am I going to do? The person who is living the me-centered life is going to be crushed by that. Like they don't have a category. My life is over. My life has been all about me pursuing this path. And now that path is no longer available. Like I'm crushed. I'm, I'm in despair. It has no category for suffering. That's why I asked you earlier, what would you tell someone who's enslaved? Paul has no ability to help them gain their freedom. Paul couldn't even have his own freedom. This is what's going on in our culture, and this, this is why we live in a, in a pharmaceutical uh, age. This is why we live in, in a time when the pharmaceutical world is making billions of dollars off of helping people sort of overcome their suffering because it's been a me-centered life, and, and, and suffering comes in and just tears that apart, and there's nothing left, and they have no, no category for to be able to deal with that, and, and so they turn uh, to medication. I don't want to say that there are not medical issues and that, that taking medication is wrong. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying, when, when you look at the billions of dollars that's being spent, and you look at the numbers, increasing numbers of people that are turning to medication, I think some of that is problematic. 
Not all of it. There, there are issues, and I don't want to downplay that. Some of that is problematic because people are not, are, are not equipped to be able to deal with suffering in their life. And isn't it interesting that despite how medicated we are, despite the fact that more and more people all the time are on different kinds of medication to help them cope with life, it, it seems like the numbers of depressed people are increasing more and more. And, and the numbers of, of suicides are increasing year by year. If this was the issue, if it was just a medical issue that could be solved by taking a little pill, then, then those numbers would be going down. But the reality is we lived in the most medicated, in the most medicated culture in the world throughout history. And yet we probably live in one of the most depressed cultures to ever exist as well. Those two things don't add up, do they? If medicine's the solution, why are more and more people depressed all the time? It doesn't make sense. A large part of our problem is that we have made life about us, and when we do this, suffering will be overwhelming. When your life is all about having the perfect family, and then you can't find a spouse, you don't get married, God doesn't provide that, that will crush you. Or you find a spouse, and you turn, it turns out that spouse really isn't that great. Right? That's a, a crushing thing. Or when you find out that you're unable to have children and, 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 and you're struggling with infertility, if you've made your life all about this dream of me having this perfect family, that will crush you. A me-centered view of life has no category for a slave and, and encouragement for a slave. But, but look at what Paul tells these slaves. He says in verse 5, Basically, he tells them to live a Christ-centered life. Don't, don't focus on yourself. Don't focus on your master. Don't focus on the condition, the situation that you're in. Focus on Christ. And so he tells them, verse 5, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Slaves, let, let, let your focus be on Christ. Let your obedience not come, first of all, for your master, or because of the situation you're in, but because you're living for Christ. Verse 6 says you're slaves of Christ. Verse 6 also says that you are to do the will of God. Let that be, let that be the controlling influence in your life, that you're doing the will of God. Verse 7, you're doing this as to the Lord and not to a man. So obey your masters, but not because of your masters. Do it as to the Lord. And then verse number 9, knowing you have a master in heaven. You see, he keeps directing them. Look to Christ. Live a Christ-centered life. Don't, don't get your focus on your master. Don't get your focus on the, the enslavement that you're in. And you, don't get your focus on your suffering and what's going on in your life. Keep your focus on Christ and live for Him. His remedy for them is to remember that their life is not their own, but belongs to Christ. And they are to live for Him then, no matter the situation. So this is what your life's about. I'm living for Christ. If things are going well, I'm living for Christ. If I'm suffering in some way, I'm living for Christ. My life is for Christ, no matter what's going on. The, the Christian is to view his or her life as belonging to the Lord. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. You are not your own, you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Well, what situation? Any situation. 
if things are going well, if you, you're making tons of money and everything's wonderful in your life and your kids are all well and your marriage is great and everything's wonderful, you belong to Christ. Glorify God. If your marriage is struggling, if you're having financial difficulties, if there's some kind of illness or you've been diagnosed with some kind of disease, what are you to do? Glorify God. Because your life is not your own. You can't control the circumstances. You don't get to dictate what happens or doesn't happen. Your responsibility is whatever situation you find yourself in, glorify God. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. That, that word, that, that, that expression, you've been bought with a price, is the idea that you're a slave. So what does he tell these slaves in Ephesians? He doesn't say, hey, you're not slaves, or don't be slaves, or you shouldn't be slaves. He says, you're slaves, but you need to remember this. You actually have a greater master. There's a slavery that is even greater in your life than the slavery that you're in. This is a temporary thing, but you're slaves of Jesus Christ. You and I, we're slaves of Christ. We're living for the Lord. Whatever He brings into our life, He's our master. He's bought us. We belong to Him. He chooses what comes into our lives and we walk through it in faith, trusting Him. 1 Corinthians 7.22 says, for he who has called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. He's a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So when you adopt the mindset that says, I belong to Christ and my life is his to do with as he pleases, it radically changes the way that you approach suffering because this is what I find for so many people who are in the midst of suffering. They're saying things like, it's not fair. This is not right. This is not what I wanted. This is not what I expected. But this is the reality, Christian. Your life is not about what is what you think is right or what you think is fair or what you had expected or planned or the, 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 the goal for your life that you had. Your life belongs to Christ and your job as a Christian is to respond to whatever He brings into your life. The purpose in life then is not my own satisfaction or fulfillment, but doing the will of Christ, no matter the circumstance. That's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians, he could talk about how he had suffered and how his desire really was, Paul's desire really was to go and be with the Lord. Has anybody here ever been to the point of suffering that you think, not that you're suicidal or thinking about ending your life, but you're just thinking, man, life would, you know, it would be better for me just to, to go on now and be with the Lord. I wouldn't have to deal with this. I wouldn't have to go through these things. Heaven is going to be wonderful. Being with the Lord is wonderful. Well, that's, I think, what Paul in, in, in part is expressing in 2 Corinthians 5 too. He says, for in this tent, that is his flesh, in his flesh, we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Are you longing to put on your heavenly dwelling? If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, that is his physical body, we groan being burdened. Do you groan because of your suffering? Are, are, are you longing for the day when this burden will be over with and you'll be able to be with the Lord and be in heaven and be rid of your problems? You're in good company. That's where the Apostle Paul was too. But listen to what he went on to say. He says, so whether we are at home, that is in his physical body, whether I remain alive, whether we are at home, 
or away, that is, if I go on to be with the Lord, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. That's where we need to be as Christians. Whether I have to continue going through this suffering or God calls me on home and I get to be with the Lord and the suffering is done away with, which is what I would prefer, but either way, I'm going to make it my aim to please the Lord. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, do all to the glory of God. You see, that's what Paul is calling these slaves to. Paul has no ability to end their slavery. He has no ability to kind of change the circumstance in their life and, and make them all better. But this is what he does. He points them to, away from themselves to Christ, away from the, the present to the future, and he says, live for that and make it your aim to please Christ, no matter what, whatever God brings into your life. As we close this morning, you, you might think, man, that's, that's hard. Christ is leading me into trials, and yet I'm to live for him and make it my aim to please him as if he's my master, and, and, and yet he's calling me through these difficult things. Why, why do I owe such allegiance to Christ? Why would Christ have me go through suffering? And, and what is it about Jesus Christ that, that would call me to endure a life of suffering with an aim of pleasing him? Why do I owe him that big debt of gratitude? Well, we know the answer, don't we? He said you've been bought with a price. You know what that price is, right? Christ didn't please himself. He, he laid down his life and endured the worst of all suffering, physical suffering, but also the suffering of having his father turn his face away from him, losing the presence of God in that moment as he took the sin, that, uh, the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin. That's the one who's calling us to this life of suffering. That's the one who's calling us to be faithful to him no matter what he brings into our life. You see, he's done that for us, and so we respond in kind. He lived his life which ended in tragic suffering so that he could give us hope of eternity. That hope that we talked about, that future that we talked about was purchased by Jesus Christ in his suffering for you. And so live your life to please him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would deliver us from this syndrome of focusing on ourselves, on what is physical, and in what is temporary, God, it's so easy for us to do. It's what seems natural to us. We pray that you would give us, as the, the uh, book of Hebrews says, that, that faith is the convi conviction of things that are not seen. I pray that you would give us that conviction that, that we would begin to be motivated and live for things that we're not seeing right now. Help us not to live by sight but to walk by faith. I pray that you would strengthen each one of us in, in our faith, that we might be able to live in a way that is pleasing to you, that that would be our aim and our purpose no matter what's going on. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.